Well, good morning again. Um, you guys can hear me better now, right? Okay, great. Uh, if you want to open back up to Psalm 131, they say that big things often come in small packages. I think Psalm 30, 131 fits that category. Uh, in the psalm that Margie read for us, we get a glimpse of what the English Puritan Jeremiah Burroughs has called a rare jewel. It's also what the Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon said that while this psalm is one of the shortest to read, it's one of the longest to learn. So what is the rare jewel of Psalm 131? What is the lesson that it contains? Well, in a word, contentment. Contentment. That is our theme this morning. But before we go further, would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God who speaks, and we pray that in these next moments together that your spirit would come and be our teacher, that we might better understand your grace and its implications for our lives. We know that you're delighted to do that in us, and we pray that you would do it again. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Psalm 131 is a psalm about contentment, about being at ease within the world and within oneself and wouldn't you agree that in a city like ours and in a region like Northern Virginia, contentment is a much sought after quality? It's something that, that we all deeply want to have, but in reality, so few of us really possess. The psalmist, uh, who we actually have the author's name, it's David, he, he says that he is content. And in the psalm, he gives us two images to look at. One that's clear for us to see, and then the other one, uh, it's a little bit obscure because of our English Bibles and the way that translations work. So the, the image that we can clearly see is in verse two. The first image is of a weaned child sitting in his mother's lap. And, and the other image that's a little bit harder for us to see comes actually at the end of verse one, where David says, I do not occupy myself with things too great. It's actually the Hebrew word for, for I do not walk or stir about. So think of the image of somebody frantically pacing back and forth, trying to control the things of life. And so those are the two images. You have someone frantically pacing about the things of the world, and you have a weaned child joyfully sitting in his mother's lap. David says that, he's, that he is content. And not only does he say that he's content, you notice in, at the start of verse 2, he says, I have calmed and quieted my soul. In other words, he's saying, I've become content. And, and when the Bible talks about contentment, it's not talking about contentment as, as a gift that only a select few people have, like introverts. Uh, it's, it, it's, not, uh, it's not something that, uh, that just a, a handful of people have. Rather, the Bible talks about contentment as a skill to be developed. Contentment is a skill that all of us can cultivate in our lives, and David says that he's, he's cultivated the skill of contentment. And you also might be thinking, well, sure, it's easy for a guy like David to say that. He was the king. He made it. He had power, success, notoriety. I mean, scripture even says he was handsome for crying out loud. Like, it's easy, it's easy to be content when you have it all. And, and one of the most important things that the Bible also has to say about contentment, it's not just a skill that, uh, it's not just a gift that some people have, but it's also something that's not connected to our circumstances. In fact, when the Bible talks about contentment, it talks about something that we can have independent from our circumstances. And if you fast forward to the New Testament, you'll find the words of somebody, actually a guy on death row, writing these words to a church in the region called Philippi. His name's Paul. He writes this, I have learned in whatever situation to be content. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. 
See, for Paul, contentment is a skill that can be developed, and it's a skill that all of us need to have, not just a skill that we need for when things are bad, right, when we're facing, uh, when we're facing want and need, but as Paul says, it's a skill that we need, maybe for us especially so, when things are good, when we have plenty and abundance. Paul says he's learned the secret of contentment. David says that he has become content in his person. So how do they do it? And by extension, how can we? Well, in Psalm 131, David holds out two paths of contentment, uh, two, two ways to be content. The first path is the path that we all start and um, that, uh, that we all start on and find ourselves on. And then the second path is the true way to contentment. So path one to contentment is try and be God, all right? Be God. Path two is trust God. So path one, be God. Path two, trust God. So let's, let's look at this first path to be God. Uh, the first path to contentment that we all start on is, is, is the desire to be God. In the first verse of our psalm, notice that David begins by renouncing three things. He says, first, my heart is not lifted up. Second, my eyes are not raised too high. And then third, he does not, he's not preoccupied with things too great or too marvelous for him. In, in other words, we could say that David has humbled himself. He doesn't undervalue other people, and he doesn't overestimate himself. And by actively renouncing these things, do you know what he's implying? He, he's saying that, that by pointing these things out that we're not naturally that way. Right? It's, it's the default of the human heart isn't towards humility or to a right view of ourselves or, or others. It, rather, the, the default setting of the human heart is to raise up our hearts. It is to lift our eyes up too high. It is to concern ourselves with things that only God himself should care about. From Genesis chapter 3 all the way until the present day, the fundamental struggle that we all wrestle with is the desire to be God. You know, the famous uh, atheist philosopher Bertrand Russell uh, agrees with the Bible to a point he almost gets it right when he says that everyone would like to be God if possible, and most of us have a hard time denying that possibility. Um, it, you see, the truth is, is that all of us have a hard time denying that possibility. All of us, when given the opportunity to try and be God, try and be God. And the dominant story of our culture is that you can be happy, you can have peace and contentment if you follow your heart and chase your dreams, and if you climb the ladder to the top and transcend all of your limitations. And we're told that if you listen to your heart and pursue, it, and pursue its desires, we'll arrive at peace and contentment. And we take this story for granted these days. It's like the air we breathe. Uh, but it hasn't always, this hasn't always been the dominant story. If you go back in history, you'll find that there are actually warnings against stories like the one that our culture has embraced. Uh, consider the ancient legend of Dr. Faustus. Uh, I heard it first in high school. Maybe that's when you got exposed to it. But if you don't know the story, here's the general contour. Uh, John Faustus was, uh, was a a very skilled individual. He was very dedicated to study on all sorts of topics, and he was approaching mastery in all of these different fields of, of law, of medicine, of theology. But he was continually uh, struggling with, he was continually bristling against the idea of being subservient to something greater than himself. Uh, whether that's the study of law being servant of justice or, or medicine being the servant of healing, theology being, being subject to God. And he wanted to transcend all of those limits. And so he took up another skill to all the, the different skills that he had. And he became skilled in magic, uh, by which he was able to defy the laws of physics, to bend the rules uh, of nature and morality to suit his own pleasures and desires. And he did all that, but it came at a cost. In order to pull all that off, 
Faustus made a deal with the devil. So for the next 24 years, he was able to live like a god, to live without limits, to live uh, in control instead of in relationship, uh, to, to practice power instead of practicing love. But at the end of those 24 years, the, the deal was over. Uh, the, the devil came and, and reclaimed Faustus's soul and dragged him down to eternal damnation. Now, what's interesting is that what served as a warning in earlier cultures has now become valorized in ours. In the words of Eugene Peterson, our whole culture has become Faustian. We've, we bristle at the limits imposed on us by authorities, whether those are religious authorities or of our family or society, uh, and we seek to transcend them. Even, even the limits of nature and our biology, we try to re- remake the world in our image and try to be God. Now, for all the advancement in the modern world, we've not moved on from that fundamental struggle in the Garden of Eden at the start of the Bible, the struggle to be God. See, the lie beneath every other lie is that we can be God, and we live in a culture that has baptized ambition in the quest to be God, but, but what is the result this morning? As, as you look at our culture, as you look at your own life, and, and if you can ask yourself, do I feel the, the quietness and calm that the psalm describes You may not be feeling that this morning. You see, even though we live in the most advanced society in human history, we're not at peace. Life, as you can see, life expectancy in America is going down. Deaths of despair are going up. Every generation now, if you look at the polls, is now more pessimistic about the future uh, than optimistic. As individuals and as a culture, we've, we've followed our hearts and pursued our desires, but what we have arrived at is not peace. We could call it something else. We can call it consumption, entertainment, distraction, uh, but not calm, not contentment. We're still frantically pacing and hurrying about trying to forge and create our own identities and to maintain them against, uh, against breaking down, and, and we fail to acknowledge how fragile those things are and how fickle the contentment that those other things truly offer us. See, this is the path that we're all on this morning, the path to try and be God. And so if, if this is the path that we're on, and try as we might, we can't remove ourselves from it, then, then how do we get on another path? Uh, what, what can we do? How did, how did David get on another path? Well, this is what the Psalms are for, friends. This is what, what the Psalms are, are here to help us to do. They're, they're here to help us move from this path to be God and to put us on a different trajectory. And, and the Psalms do it in this way because the, the Psalms are songs that the people of God are meant to sing to God, but the Psalms are also here to help us sing songs to our souls. They're, they're here to help us start a conversation with our hearts. You see, uh, Psalm 42 is a good example. If, if you go to that psalm later this week, you'll read the psalmist having a conversation with his own heart. He says, why are you downcast, O my soul? Hope in God. Uh, psalm 116, which we looked at a couple weeks ago, does the same thing. It says, return, O my soul, to your rest. See, the psalmists are talking to God, but they're also talking to their own hearts. And the psalms are made to do that, and especially this, this group of psalms that, of which Psalm 131 is a part. If you have your Bible open, you'll see the heading of the psalm. It calls itself a psalm of ascent. And the psalms of ascent are, are unique. They're, they're a book within a book within a book. It's like inception, but for the psalms. Um, so you have, you have the book of psalms, and the, and the book of psalms itself is comprised of five books. And then within book five of the psalms, you have Psalm 120 to Psalm 134. And these are the psalms of ascent. It, it's, 
it's a, it's a, it's a playlist within the playlist that, uh, that the people of Israel were, were meant to sing as they made their way to Jerusalem three times a year for their great feasts, for the Feast of Passover, for the Feast of First Fruits, for the Feast of Booths. And Jerusalem was the city on the hill, and so as they made their way up, hence songs of ascent, they sang these songs. And, and these were songs that were meant to prepare their hearts to meet with God. And, and, and as they sang these songs to, to meet with God, they were also meant to do the work of introspection and, and soul surgery. You have Psalm 121 that begins by saying, I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. And in singing that song to God, the psalmist, the, the singer of the song is meant to look at their own heart and says, that's where my eyes ought to be. I ought to be looking to the Lord for his help and salvation, but, but where are my eyes really? When I experience worry and anxiety in my life, where, where do I look? Am I looking to the hill that, that the Lord, to the city where the Lord is, or am I looking to some other place for rest and relief? Am I looking for, for some other source of, of salvation, of satisfaction, of hope? See, the, the Psalms are meant to, to help us talk to our hearts, to help us examine why it is that we're not, we're not feeling uh, peace or calm or contentment. The Psalms are an invitation to listen to our hearts and to respond to them with truth. And, and can I say this morning, I, I say this out of, out of my own personal experience, that if we're honest, I think a lot of us spend more time listening to our hearts than talking to our hearts. We, we spend a lot more time listening to the desires and ambitions and fears and worries and anxieties of our hearts and then spinning our wheels trying to indulge and satisfy them rather than slowing down to talk to our hearts to remind our hearts of what is true, of the deeper things of the world, that, that what God would have to say. You see, our hearts often lead us astray, and, and the Psalms give us permission to, to, to tell our hearts to slow down, to, to interrogate our, our emotions and our motives so that we can actually live the lives that we were designed to live, that God, de- that God intends for us to live. The Psalms say that it's wise and good to talk back to your heart. And, and, and when you talk back to your heart, do you know what to say? Do you, do you know what to say? This is why being in God's word is so crucial and important because you need to be in God's word because it's only God's words to your heart that's going to set you free and give you peace in life. Any other words won't cut it. No other words will will give you that kind of rest. You'll tell yourself in the morning when you wake up, do better, be better. And and when you fail, you're a loser. You don't measure up. When you go out into the culture, the culture will say, you know, you you actually shouldn't feel guilty. You should should just throw that off. Live live your best life. You're amazing. The the culture's words won't acknowledge your feelings. They'll tell you to dismiss them and make little of them. And, And it will set you up for failure every single time. You see, your words will crush you. The culture's words will deceive you. It's only God's words that will give you life. It's only God's words that will give you genuine perspective uh, about your life and about the world that we live in. And so do you have a practice of letting God's word speak to you, Uh, of letting God's word speak to your heart so that when you go throughout your day, you can talk back to your heart with the words that are are true and life-giving and good? The summer is a great time to start up a habit like that, uh, a practice of being in God's word. And we would love to, as a church, uh, I see Pastor Terrence in the corner over there. He would love to tell you how to get into God's word and to, and to start creating a practice of talking to your soul. 
So we can, we can do that. And, and when we start to talk to our hearts, that's when we start to move ourselves onto this other path, uh, this path away from trying to be our own God to this path of trusting God. See, if the first path to contentment is, is a dead end, the path to be God, the second path is the path that leads to contentment. And that's the path to trust God. When we start to talk to our hearts, we begin to, to trust God. And you see, you see the, the, first verse, the first two verses of Psalm 131, this is David talking to himself and to his own soul. And then in verse 3, he starts to talk to, to us. He says, I've calmed and quieted my soul. And now, now people of God, put your hope in the Lord. From, from today and, and every day, trust in God, he says. And the image that David uses of the contentment that he's found in verse 2 is that of a weaned child. A weaned child, maybe that's not an image that, that, you, that you run into every day. For parents in the room, this is a very familiar image. What is a weaned child? Well, compare it with, with an unweaned child, and I, I can speak from great experience because that's what I currently have right now. Uh, but an unweaned child is a child who, who wants mom because of what mom can give her. Right? The, the chi- an unweaned child wants mom for her stuff. But a child who has been weaned is a child who just enjoys being with mom sitting in her lap, completely content and joyful, being in her presence. And that's what David is getting at. That's, that's where David has arrived. He's come to this place where he enjoys God for, for God's sake and not because of all the blessings and benefits that God has given to him. See, God, God's, uh, David says that, God, your gifts are good, oh, but the giver of, that, of those gifts is so much better. He says that God is the best thing. God is better than the best thing that the world has to offer. That he's arrived at contentment just by being in God's presence. And that, friends, is the secret to contentment. It is by finding rest in God himself and not in the things that God has given you. Or not in the circumstances that God has allowed to, to, to uh, support your life at this moment in time. That, that God is much greater than his gifts. God is so much better than his gifts. But in order for us to understand it, something needs to happen. Uh, This psalm implies something uncomfortable, but it's necessary for us to grow into that truth that God is is good in himself. And that's that's a process of weaning. If David says that he's a weaned child, a weaning process had to take place. In the New Testament, in the Gospel of John, Jesus uses the same idea, but with a different metaphor. In John 15, he says that, that God prunes his followers so that they might bear more fruit. And pruning uh, is, a, is a difficult process. Weaning is an uncomfortable thing. See, God in his grace, he, he loves us too much to let us find our rest in other things than himself. And so in his grace, he will functionally start to wean and prune us off of those things that our souls find their functional rest in, whether that's our wealth or our status or our reputation, our career, so that we would actually know where true rest and, and deep contentment is found. Last week, uh, Pastor Austin talked about William Cooper. I want to share a little bit about Cooper's friend, John Newton. John Newton has written this hymn that's not as well known as Amazing Grace or some of the other ones that he's written, but it's, it speaks to this reality of pruning. And, and the, the, song is, the hymn is called, I Ask the Lord That I Might Grow. I Ask the Lord That I Might Grow. That's the first line of the song. And then he says that, I ask the Lord that I might grow in, in deeper knowledge and fullness of, of relationship with God. And, and he had expected that in making that, that great prayer, and, and who doesn't want that to grow in the, in the grace and knowledge of God, that 
that John Newton's life was going to continue to go up and to the right, that, that to the, the, good, the good experiences and circumstances that he was experiencing, that God was just going to pour on top of that more and more, and that way John Newton would know more of God and his grace. But it, it, something different happens. John Newton, he, he records this. He says, instead of this, and answering my prayer the way I'd hoped, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. And he goes on to say, Lord, why is this? I trembling cried. Will you pursue me to my death? And then here's what God had to say in response. He says, it's in this way, the Lord replied, I answer prayer for grace and faith. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set you free and break your schemes of earthly joy that you may find your all in me. God in his grace will break our schemes of earthly joy in order that we might see that that he is all we need, that we can rest fully and entirely in him, that we can sit in his lap and be joyful and content. This this pruning process is, is uncomfortable, it's difficult, but friends, it's oh so necessary if we're going to go on and go further up and further in in the life of following God. Charles Spurgeon again says that, to the weaned child, his mother is his comfort, though she has denied him comfort. The, the, the weaned child, the, to the mother, uh, to the weaned child, the mother is his comfort, though, though he has, she has denied him comfort, meaning that, that the, just as the same way that the mother withholds something good, something that the child thinks they need, uh, the mother is doing that because she's holding out something better. She's, she's holding out solid food that the child will, will eat on for the rest of their life that, that is actually better and better for them than the milk that they cry out for in the moment. See, the, the winning process is not, it's not us going to a God who is withholding or takes pleasure in, in, in holding back good things from his kids, but, but no, this is a God who delights in giving us more, holding back some good at times, in order, to, in order to extend to us more and better. The, the things that we would ask for if we knew how to ask for it. See, God is, is not a God who's withholding, but he's a God who delights to give good things to his kids. And, and friends, do you know where we see this, this, uh, this kind of contentment that, that David experiences? Well, if you go to our assurance of pardon, you'll see um, Psalm 130, verse 7. This, was the, um, this is the, the verse that, that comes right before Psalm 131. And scholars on the Psalms will tell you that sometimes when, when there are linking Psalms, that they, if you see a repeat of uh, refrain in, in, in succeeding Psalms, that they're somehow connected. Psalm 130 and Psalm 131 are connected by the words, um, O Israel, hope in the Lord. And, and the word hope here says, For with the Lord is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. So you see why David can rest content in God, because he knows who God is. He knows his character, that he is a God of steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. And David was able to see that uh, imperfectly, and, and, and on this side of the cross in 2023, we can see this with ever greater clarity, because we know that our God is a God of steadfast love and plentiful redemption when we look at Jesus. When we see Jesus, uh, if you look at David's life, David was somebody who says he's content in this psalm, but we know that his life was, was, a, was a bundle of contradictions. He was, uh, he was a king, he was humble, but then he was proud and arrogant, and he uh, did things that brought dis- great dishonor to his family and to the nation of Israel. 
See, where, where David lived this life imperfectly, where he was not fully content in every second of his life, Jesus sang this psalm with complete integrity. At every moment in his life, he was content and rested in what the Father had, had given for him. He, he rested in God alone. And in fact, when we talk about psalms of ascent, we could say that Jesus transforms these psalms of ascent because where God looks down at us and seeing us continuing to try to climb the mountain to be God on our self-destructive paths to be our own, to be our own God, Jesus in his love looks down and he descends. Because we can't make our way up to God, God has come down to us in Jesus to give us peace, to give us contentment, to become our peace, as Ephesians 2 says. Because Jesus saw us on our, on our self-destructive paths to be God, Jesus came down to bear our punishment, uh, to, to bear the penalty of our, of our, of our uh, vain striving so that we might find rest in him. Jesus came to be our peace, to, to bring us plentiful redemption through his steadfast love. And we can rest in that today. We can find contentment and, and stop our frantic pacing because we know that, that God is our, is our steadfast love and, he, and with him is plentiful redemption. Ultimately, we can rest in Jesus because we've seen God's character. He's a God who, who gives us good gifts, the gift of his only son. And as Romans 8 says, if, if God has not held back even his own son, will he not also give us all things? See, like a mother who, who weans her baby off of milk for better food, we can trust that God, even now, is pruning us to grow us. He's preparing us for unimaginable glory. And in those moments where it's hard to see or understand why God is withholding something from us, something that we want or, or think that we need, or why he allows the suffering that we're enduring currently to continue, we can look to the cross, which is history's greatest example of suffering and evil transformed into good and blessing for our benefit. And know that, that God is in control, that, that he knows what he's doing. We won't occupy ourselves with things too great and too marvelous for us because we know that our God is good, that with him is steadfast love and plentiful redemption. And this is a truth that I'm, I'm currently learning in a new way as I, as I step into a new call and a new church in, a, in about a couple months time. Um, but I was grateful for the words of the author Philip Yancey when he shared um, the words that he shared in an article published back in February. And the title itself is worth the read. It's, it's, the article is called Parkinson's, The Gift I Didn't Want. And in the article, Philip reflects on how he grew up with family members who um, always suffered from different health challenges. When he was a young boy, his father died of polio um, after, uh, after months being in an iron lung. And his older brother, who was, uh, Philip would say, was much more talented and exceptional than, than he was, uh, suffered a stroke. And all of that potential was, was snuffed out through uh, a, a crazy health event. And while Philip never, never thought he was something special or, or too exceptional, uh, he, he realized that he had his health. Uh, he realized that as long as he was healthy, he, he would be doing fine. Uh, and all of that came crashing down literally through a, ski, through a skiing accident in Colorado that led to an ER visit that led to a diagnosis of Parkinson's. And, and at first he denied and tried to hide it from others and to minimize it and say nothing, nothing really big was, was going on in his life. But through reflecting on the Psalms and also by seeing a, a Christian friend of his with Parkinson's and cancer suffer well in the midst of, of his illness... Uh, here's what he had to say. My future is full of question marks, and I'm not unduly anxious. 
I trust in a good and loving God who chooses to reveal those qualities through his followers on earth. Pain redeemed impresses me much more than pain removed. Pain redeemed impresses me much more than pain removed. See, friends, the the rare jewel of Christian contentment can be yours this morning because the gospel frees us to stop our frantic pacing to be God and to trust and rest in the God of our salvation. The weaning and the pruning is uncomfortable, but there's no pain that you feel right now that won't be redeemed when Christ returns in his perfect kingdom. On that day, we'll be with him, and that will be enough. So Israel, McLean Prez, put your hope in the Lord this day and every day. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God of steadfast love and plentiful redemption, that you, Lord Jesus, came to give us peace, to give us contentment, that we might stop our striving to try and be God, that we might just rest in your love and care for our lives. It's easier said than done, Lord, so we pray that your spirit would equip us for that task, that we might be a body of believers, a community of faith to a world that is frantically scurrying to know that rest can be found, and it's in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.